white and black airmen starting to be skeptical of one another based on what they were being trained to believe. Asian American airmen tired of all of the black versus white rhetoric. When I was in the Air Force, I was just in the Air Force. Politics wasn't a big part of our day-to-day -day operation. Do you think there's a problem with even allowing an idea that dangerous enter the minds of people? We have to honor their rights to go and participate in politically charged, potentially violent and dangerous protests like Black Lives Matter protests. There's a big difference between a sudden tipping point and just a gradual build up to, hey, where did you show up out of nowhere? You're sitting here telling me I'm racist. You see people losing their jobs if they disagree with a particular political stance yep. or political ideology and insist that to disagree is to identify yourself as either racist or bigoted. Like just a few weeks ago, everybody was hearing this. You probably saw this on TV, news, you know, different websites. A Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer was fired uh, based on a couple of comments he made on a conservative podcast. And when I saw that, I was curious. I wanted to do a little bit more research on him. And you find out here's a commander who left after being in the Air Force, I believe, for 14 years and decides to join Space Force. And it's starting to see what's going on, maybe a little bit of an adjustment that's taking place, the direction military is going in, and he comments on it. Now, this isn't just a soldier. I was in the Army. I was a 63 Bravo mechanic. I worked on Hummers. The man I'm interviewing today has 1,200 hours of flying a T-38 as an instructor pilot, followed by the F-15C. This is not just anybody we're talking about that served the military. This is somebody that went to the top, became a commander made a couple comments. And by the way, when you hear him speak today, you will know this is not someone that is a divider. This is not someone that's an opinionated that just kind of wants to give his opinion out there and, you know, by doing podcasts. This is some someone that's very level-headed. This is someone that's coming from a very reasonable place that's concerned. And his comments were uh, led to him losing his job, which is unfortunate for him uh, having lost his job. Now, the thing you need to know is the fact that whatever comments he gives us is important for everybody to know. These are his comments. It's different than what the military stands for. He stands for his comments that has to say just as I do as well. With that being said, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Lohmeyer, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. So, so if you don't mind taking a, because for me, you know, you and I were talking about it uh, before the interview. When I was in the Army, I was just in the Army. I was in a lot of meetings, but there was not a lot of politics involved. You just went, you got your job done. You know, maybe you debated sports. Maybe you debated when there was an election time, but it wasn't as divisive as, you know, America's not a good country. America's, you know, history is not maybe the best. And we've done some really bad things. It was more about if it wasn't for America, if it wasn't for here's what we've done, here's what the 101st Airborne has done. And it looks like some things have changed. So do you mind, you know, going from your story first, if the audience doesn't know your background, who were you? You were champion, you know, you were on a championship team, basketball team. Kind of walk us through that on what led to you being right before you getting fired. Sure. Thank you. I suppose there's a lot to say. Uh, I'll be as brief as I can Go with some it. of the personal background, uh, but I'm grateful for the long form interview. Uh, in high school, I played basketball. We won the state championship in Arizona. and. Uh, I was noticed my sophomore year of high school by the Air Force Academy. Incidentally, I had the best games of my life when the Air Force Academy uh, recruiting team was there watching and the worst games of my life with some of the other universities I was hoping to attend. Uh, and so they, they picked me up pretty early and uh, I took interest uh, in the Air Force Academy for the first time in my life, basically my junior and senior year of high school. I never had any military ambition. Uh, I didn't have my parent, neither of my parents had served in the military. Uh, I'd only had one uncle uh, who had served active duty Air Force and a grandfather who had served briefly uh, during the time period of the Korean War. But I was recruited to play basketball and, and decided to attend the Air Force Academy. I only played basketball for one year and it was while I was there at the Air Force Academy that I decided to start taking the military obligation seriously and began to appreciate the importance of military service. It wasn't before I went, it was only after I had gone. Well, as you mentioned, uh, after graduation from the Air Force Academy, I spent 14 years roughly in the Air Force. About half of that time I was flying, and the other half of that time I was working in space for Air Force Space Command. And until the creation of the US Space Force, 
the Air Force, the Department of the Air Force, uh, and the service, the Air Force, uh, was the only service that was largely responsible for all of our space-based capabilities and space operations uh, that we did in the world. And so I made the transition into uh, Air Force Space Command and gained expertise in space-based missile warning and also had the opportunity uniquely to travel the world for an entire year as the aide-de-camp for the four-star General John Raymond, who was in charge of Air Force Space Command and see all of our space missions across the globe. It was a very unique opportunity. I bet. And uh, so it was also with him, interestingly, during uh, important conversations that were taking place in DC and elsewhere about the stand-up and creation of a new independent space force and looked forward to the opportunity to transition into that service, which I did uh, just this past year. And so I've served a little over 15 years now total on active duty, and only a little over a year of that has, or under a year of that has been in the new service, the Space Force. But more specifically to your point, and to your question, you asked uh, when it was, or how long it has been that I've been seeing or recognizing this kind of thing uh, that I'm writing about, speaking about in the services. Like you, When I was in the Air Force, I was just in the Air Force. Politics wasn't a big part of our day-to-day operation. And I would argue that largely speaking today throughout the services, politics still is not a big part of what they do. However, there's been a momentous shift during the past calendar year to begin offering not just annual trainings, but monthly and weekly and daily conversation in some bases, depending on where you work about race-related issues. They're politicizing discussions, not unifying discussions. They're they're divisive discussions because a lot of the language of critical race theory is being invoked, something that the American people hadn't heard a lot about in the past, uh, before the past calendar year, but are beginning to hear a lot about now. And as I recognized those discussions in the form of what we call diversity and inclusion trainings, uh, stand-down days, uh, both locally and and also Department of Defense wide, I recognize just how divisive this these discussion points were going to become as our down days and trainings were starting to translate into white and black airmen, for example, starting to be skeptical of one another based on what they were being trained to believe. Asian American airmen coming to me and explaining that they're tired of all of the black versus white rhetoric and that they're deciding to get out of the Air Force. White airmen coming to me and saying they're deciding to separate from the the Air Force or Space Force because they're tired of being accused of racism constantly. So this is the time period, the last calendar year that I've recognized these things really starting to heat up. And that's been true across broader society, but also in the services. Is there a single event that caused that or was it a, because there's a big difference between a sudden tipping point and just a gradual, you know, build up to, hey, where did you show up out of nowhere? You're sitting here telling me I'm racist. I don't have any problem with anybody. I just want to make sure you're performing. How did this show? Was it overnight or was it gradual? The reason that's difficult to answer properly, in my view, is because the answer is both. It is both gradual and it is sudden. Marxist, communist, subversive tactics require years, if not generations, to properly germinate, uh, for the soil to be properly prepared, for people's willingness to divorce themselves from what would be considered traditional values. that, That kind of thing takes a long time. There's a reason those who understand and are intent upon pushing that agenda target the education system, specifically higher learning, uh, but also now the public education system, our churches. uh, Those institutions are places where from a very young age to our adult life, we continue to be educated and influenced. And if if you can plant subtle ideas over a long period of time, all it takes is certain tipping point or crisis events, as you pointed out, to capitalize on in order to begin revolutionary changes within a society. One such event, uh, it's just a matter of fact, I know it's controversial, but was George Floyd's death. 
what I saw in broader society and incidentally in the military services this past calendar year was that that event uh, was capitalized on by those who are activists for uh, whether they realize it or not, a Marxist agenda. Black Lives Matter and Antifa, for example, have Marxist aims. Uh, there are many compassionate people who participate in uh, these various efforts because they're compassionate and because they are interested in bettering the lives of humans. But what they don't understand is that the inventors of or creators of the ideology and the agenda have a particular aim in mind and its division, not unity. It's, uh, it's revolution, not peaceful unification of society. And there's a particular way in which they go about it, which we've seen in the past year. It's, it's uh, getting people angry. It's shouting slogans. It's uh, tribalism. And when that begins to be injected into our most trusted institutions, like the United States military, then what you see is the breakdown of good order and discipline as the kind of polarization that typifies broader society now infests one of your one of your uh, purposefully non-political organizations. As you're aware, you serve in the army. It's purposefully non-political or apolitical, and and for good reason because you can't have people who are dodging bullets and and returning bullets uh, caught up in hatred towards one another because of the tribal identity politics. So, so let me let me ask a question, and and, and I'm gonna, you know, it's technical, but I think you, you'll you'll see where I'm going with this. So, who knows this is happening? Who doesn't know this is happening? Who knows this is happening that they support? Who knows this is happening that they don't support? Those are hard questions to answer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best Please. and give my personal view. And I think it's difficult to give the answer accurately in a snapshot of time, because this is a very dynamic, complex societal manifestation. And, and what I mean by that is to your first question, who knows that this is happening? Uh, I would have told you a year ago that far fewer people know that it's happening than are becoming aware that it's happening today in uh, on July 2nd of 2021, okay? Um, for example, what I had mentioned a few minutes ago is that very few people heard about critical race theory or understood that it had a Marxist lineage of ideas just a year ago. Today, there are groups of parents who had never been politically active, let's say, in the past decade of their lives who are becoming very involved in trying to understand some of the talking points and tactics that are Marxist in nature that is infiltrating the school system. Um, <clears throat> there are parents of, who are concerned who are sending their children off to our service academies, who are for the first time paying attention to what just a year previous they might not have been aware had Marxist roots. So I say that to say, I think that that's a, the answer to your first question, who, who knows that this is happening? I would say that there is a rapidly growing base of citizens in this country who are very aware. And I'll also mention that Western liberal democracies generally speaking, are becoming aware, if they haven't already been, that this is taking place. I'm aware just personally, uh, based on the fact that my book is now selling in at least a dozen countries, primarily uh, Western democratic nations, uh, but also some Southeast Asian uh, Pacific area uh, nations as well. Um, the second question, who doesn't know that this is happening? Well, that's harder for me to answer. Uh, because I think some of those that don't are going to come to know in the next month or two. And if uh, and if they don't come to know in the next month or two or within the next year, they're going to know probably well after it's far too late and they should have recognized it earlier because where this all leads to, if it's left unchecked, is civil strife, continued polarization of society, and unfortunately, 20th century history tells us it leads to violence. Uh, and in fact, that's a part of the agenda. A Marxist agenda is to cause violent revolution. Now, the the, the third and fourth questions that you've asked, uh, I, I'm going to ask you to restate them so I can perfectly understand it. But who who understands that this is happening and and either maybe supports it? Yes, and, and understands the aims of the agenda. I think that's a much smaller subset. If I've got the question right, that's a much smaller subset of society. But you know, Douglas Murray points out in his book, uh, "The Madness of Crowds." 
that at, there was a poll taken in 2016 uh, of, of academics in our college and university campuses, for example, almost 20%, 20% of them identify publicly as Marxist. That's a shocking number, and it wasn't that high 10 years ago. Uh, that was as of 2016. I think the number was 16 or 18%, but I can't remember for sure. He has a chapter in his book on Marxism, in fact, and it's in that chapter that he mentions that statistic. Uh, but there are by far more people who don't appreciate the danger of the aims of the revolution who participate nonetheless in the movement. Uh, we've got good friends who disagree with us uh, on these issues, which in my view aren't, aren't partisan political issues. I'm simply, as a service member, trying to defend my oath to the Constitution, defend the Constitution and its ideals, and defend America's traditional values, let's say, that I think personally are under attack. But there are others who think that they're highly partisan. There are also others that think uh, I'm either bigoted or racist or uh, some other ist or name that they can come up with because they think that if you're a compassionate human being, naturally you would flock to these movements that strive for social justice that use words like freedom and equity or equality, liberty, and of course, we all care about those words, but they're defined very differently by different groups of people and therefore lead to very different ends. So that's my best effort at those four questions. Those are hard ones. And I think people do fall into different categories as you've, no, I, I think uh, they as do. you've insisted. Yeah, I think they do. And I think you're right that the group that knows who support it is a very, very small group, but they're growing so rapidly and they know how to drive. The biggest tool I believe Marxists have today that they didn't have before is this thing called social media. That's the biggest tool. This has helped them out so much to drive their agenda because they can simply go out there and, you know, divide communities, divide many different people, get some people to question things, you know, gaslighting. Hey, do you really realize what your parents are doing to you? Do you really realize what your community, it's not fair. That's not, that's not how they should do it. And they're dividing, dividing, dividing. But if you don't mind, you know, going back to the, the CRT, critical race theory, can you can you take us back with the history of this with, you know, and I'm talking about how this came about Freud, Karl Marx, Frankfurt School, Antonio Gramsci. You know, if you can go back and break down how this whole thing came about, that in order for us to be able to divide, we need a revolution and who came up with it and what's the formula to make that happen. Thank you. There, there's two things I'm going to mention. The first, I want to go back to your point about the tool of social media that we have available to us. You'll, you'll see in the news right now that the Chinese Communist Party has just celebrated its 100-year anniversary of its creation. Now, for people that aren't familiar with the history of the Chinese Communist Party, I'll say that, <laughs> go back 100 years, that's 1921. Okay, Mao Zedong and a bunch of communist or Marxist revolutionaries, this is just several years after uh, the Bolshevik Revolution succeeded. It's just two years after Communist Party USA is established in the United States, and Communist parties are established across dozens and dozens of countries in the world in the year and two following the Bolshevik Revolution. 1921, you have a Communist Party that's established in China, but they did not, notice, have social media available to them in 1921. And look at the time period involved in the revolutionary efforts that are slow growing like a cancer or a metastasization throughout rural China and getting a uh, proletariat base to rise up in revolution against the incumbent government. It's 1949, 1949, nearly 30 years later before a communist revolution succeeds at pushing out nationalists to, to the island of Taiwan with Chiang Kai-shek and other nationalists. And and Mao Zedong establishes the Chinese Communist Party as a single party rule within China. It's almost 30 years. Now, you don't need that kind of timeline in modern America or in any modern country that has social media, to your point, because the revolution and the ideas of the revolution spread rapidly via sound bites to young, vulnerable people uh, who are interested in getting into the exciting, romantic cause of revolution against the terrible oppressor. Uh, now, now, transitioning into the second part, the, the question that you've asked about critical race theory. 
Whereas earlier communist revolutions of the 20th century were more faithfully aligned, I'll say, with the original narrative of the Communist Manifesto, which was penned by Marx and Engels in 1848, specifically an, an economically based class stratification or class grouping of people, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The idea that the bourgeoisie or the capitalist ruling class was oppressive and the proletariat worker class was the oppressed victim. There's, there are words like slaves used in the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels to really generate a kind of visceral animosity for those who have wealth and who rule uh, in, in that system or in whatever country that narrative might take hold. You pointed out Gramsci, uh, I, the, the communist leader uh, in Italy. Italy. Yeah. There are many other names I trace through in my book that some of, there are Marxists that come over from Germany and flee the Third Reich in the 1930s to the United States, to Columbia University, and there at, at the teacher's college there uh, in the early 1930s, in the lead up to World War II, these, these Marxist uh, philosophers, I'll say from the Frankfurt School, establish more firmly in the United States, Marxist thought during the, the decade of the 1930s and the numbers of Communist Party USA during the 1930s boom. Uh, and before the decade is over, tens of thousands of new members have been added to the Communist Party USA. And one of the things that Gramsci noticed uh, that was that in Western society, Western peoples were too wedded to their traditional value systems that were largely Judeo-Christian, okay, and which tended to appreciate the value, the inherent worth of the individual. And and shy away from any kind of uh, revolutionary or replacement ideology that would instead emphasize the collective over the individual because there was a fear of individual liberties being taken or threatened. And so one of the, one of the ways in which they determined, Gramsci and other uh, communists and Marxist revolutionaries determined to shape the narrative in the West was that they needed a long-term plan that was subversive, that would divorce uh, Western, the, the, the civilization, the, the populations of Western societies, and specifically uh, America, from their traditional values so that they would be more susceptible to uh, the ideal, the ideas and ideals of Marxism. And so there was, uh, there are books about this, but there are lines of effort or attack, and you'll appreciate this as a military uh, man, you know, lines of effort are needed to accomplish certain ultimate aims. There are many lines of effort underway uh, that, that have been outlined in, in, in many places, and they're, they're easy to find these days in books and online. And so I won't recapitulate them here, but they targeted the education system. They targeted religious organizations. They targeted even elected office within the United States, the Senate, the Congress, the presidency, uh, Nothing was off the table for Marxist revolutionaries. They wanted to run for office and get in and start to influence the system from any place that they could. So when you, when you look back through the 19, specifically to the 1930s is where I spent quite a bit of time uh, in my book. And then there's a school of thought that's established during that time period called critical theory or the critical school of thought. It's essentially the incessant criticism of all things Western civilization but it manifests in different ways throughout the decades. It morphs over time, for example, into the 1960s and 70s into a school of thought that's called critical legal theory, or uh, th there's a group called the critical legal scholars that last for decades, and they're trying to, to demonstrate how our laws and norms that have been established, now there's a transition to race, by the way, and away from economic stratification, how whites, uh, white Christians, for example, have established laws and norms that are detrimental to people of color or any other minority group that you can pick out of society. And that morphs yet again further still into its most political manifestation, which is critical race theory, where they really start to capitalize on race dynamics and, and the evil history of slavery in this country. Uh, and uh, racist, institutionally or systemically racist laws of the past 
the evils of the past and they resurrect those that pull them up out of the grave in order to build suitably unfavorable narratives of American history and the American people to once again reintroduce separation division into society with the hopes of completely, I'll use their terms, dismantling, overthrowing, uh, burning down the incumbent government and the system and ultimately establishing a one-party system here too so that uh, one political, uh, one side of the political spectrum can be put down, shut down, canceled, censured, and demonized while another can work its way into becoming a kind of one-party system like you see in uh, other communist revolutions or regimes. But, but I mean, the, the part uh, 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 you know, it's funny when you're speaking, it took me to Iran and I lived in Iran 10 years. And one of the reasons why the Shah, uh, you know, they eventually kicked them out the second time, there was a group the Shah feared the most. And it was a, a group called Today. And today's were communists who had escaped Lenin or Stalin. You know, these could have been Armenians. This could have been, you know, Russians who came to Iran because the Shah was trying to make it more westernized. And he had the battle against the Hezbollahs and, you know, the extremists. And today, he feared today so much that every today, just think about today equals communist. Same thing. These are people that swore by the book Karl Marx, Communist Manifesto, my family, mother's side. They, the Communist Manifesto Bible was first, then it was the Bible. It was like, to them, that was their Bible. I grew up with that. And he kept, every time he found them, he kept arresting them. He found ways to eliminate them because he knew long-term these guys were trying to create a revolution in Iran to divide the entire nation that was growing at a pace that was about to pass UK, specifically with all the new contracts of oil he was going to renew in 1979. Obviously, in, in the contract that was signed in 1954 for 25-year contract with France, Germany, Russia, and I believe uh, uh, U.S. And then that was his fear. So where I'm going with this is, you know, the whole idea where General uh, uh, Mark Milley, who you, you know, General Mark Milley, he came out and he uh, uh, opposed folks like yourself. And here's a man who says, look. What's wrong with my kid? I've read Communist Manifesto and I've read, you know, I don't know what the other book he talked about. Wealth of, I don't know what the other book would have been. It would have been Ayn Rand or Atlas Shrugged or, uh, but he said another book. He says, I've read both books. He says, I want to learn both books. What's wrong with learning both books? What's wrong with doing this? Do you think there's a problem with even allowing an idea that dangerous enter the minds of people? Or are you from the school of thought of, if we're going to develop a strong immune system as individuals, sometimes herd immunity means you have to face opposing ideas for you to get stronger. What are your thoughts on that? That's an excellent uh, question that you've asked. Um, I think that it's important for us to learn history. First off, I'll say that up front. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, it's important not to shy away from our ugly past as a country either. <clears throat> um, it's one thing to study and learn about Marxism, for example, to study the Communist Manifesto, to study Lenin's writings, to study Mao's writings, uh, what Stalin was doing uh, during his time in the Soviet Union. It's one thing to study ideology and these things. It's an, it's an entirely different thing altogether to infuse our institutions with its tenets and its vocabulary. Okay, entirely different. It's important and healthy to have dialogue. It's unhealthy to impose viewpoints, political viewpoints and ideology on people and insist that to disagree is to identify yourself as either racist or bigoted, or, and you, you start throwing labels around at people if they disagree with your views, if they disagree with your understanding of history, that's where things begin. You mentioned fear in Iran, there was a fear. There is a climate of fear that we've generated for ourselves very rapidly in this country where we politicize the environment. And you know, you see people losing their jobs if they disagree with a particular political stance yep. or political ideology. Well, I'll tell you what that translates into in an organization like our armed forces. And this is a very important point. Our service members, in my view, shoulder an unfair burden of remaining apolitical when political ideology comes 
face to face with them and they've been trained their entire lives to know that they're supposed to remain apolitical because to disagree is to necessarily be viewed as politically partisan, yep. but to sit silent because of a climate of fear is to allow for you, your values, your belief systems, your own viewpoint to be steamrolled by a different uh, incompatible political ideology. Now, I think that if an individual is interested in studying Marxism or critical race theory or Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, you know, these various ideas that have been swirling around in the media in the past few weeks and months, that is completely their prerogative. That's completely their prerogative. They can study it. Now, if they're studying it to understand the enemy, that's great, especially as an active duty service member who's sworn an oath to defend the Constitution. Study and learn about the regimes and ideology that we've spent at least a half a century combating with blood and treasure. We've sent millions of troops into combat in the last half century to combat Marxist communist regimes and ideology. And now to criticize it as politically partisan? I mean, we're in a dangerous spot. Now, if you want to go study Hitler's Mein Kampf because you're interested in learning about the evils that led to great atrocity, then go study it. But when we, so the point that I'm making is it's one thing to study history and there's danger in burying history. And there's a reason that in Mao's Cultural Revolution in 1966, they had book burnings throughout the country. There's a reason that when Marxist revolution gets underway, we topple statues and insist that, that certain viewpoints are acceptable and others are not. In American society, we should we thrive on the study of, of history, understanding the past, and then valuing and cherishing America's founding philosophy. And when we get away from that and insist that it's, again, I'll, I'll make the point, when we infuse our institutions with the tenets, the vocabulary and the ideology of it, uh, of any of any particular ideology, but specifically Marxist ideology, which is what I've been focused on, to the detriment of American philosophy and and founding ideology, the idea that the, the individual has inherent worth, then we're starting to walk a road where you become exceptionally divided, because there will always be freedom-loving, America-loving Americans who will never abandon those those beliefs, who will fight against. Uh, those divisive ideologies, which we've recognized in history, have have been antithetical to our own. Do you do you think it's okay for us to have communistic professors, like those who are openly? I'm a communist. I believe in communism. Do you think we ought to allow folks to be professors who are, who believe in communism? I've never been asked that question. I could give you an answer that I might change the way I say it a week from now. Sure, but I'll say that. I'm surprised that we've got people hanging on to Marxism and communism as a viable ideology for governance of humanity at this point, considering that it's produced tens of millions, if not over 100 million deaths in the last century, when it's been instantiated as a single party system in various countries that has completely tyrannized populations of people. Um, so... That's the first thing I'll say is that I'm surprised that in a, in a country like America, um, that's somehow a viable alternative to the American philosophy that has produced such equality and such wealth, such uh, a standard of living, such a successful multiracial country that's never been seen in the history of our planet. Now, it's for the very reason that we appreciate diversity in this country and diversity of thought and opinion that I suppose it's even possible that people would have such views. And I think they're entitled to those views. But specifically when it manifests in the military, let's say, now when those beliefs begin to manifest as advocacy for violent revolution, I identify in, one, in, in my book that there are active duty service members. And there are not many, but there's plenty because we've got hundreds of thousands of service members who are online on their social media accounts advocating for burning down cities in this country. Uh, that is first off illegal. And I'm surprised that not a single senior leader in our defense department has asked me any further questions about some of the specific examples that I've mentioned in my book. 
because if it was, uh, let's say, in my in my view, if it was the other way around, and I said, "Hey, I'm aware of some white supremacist uh, ideology that's floating around," or "I'm aware of some white nationalist extremists," uh, I'd have them pounding down my door asking for some specifics, right? <clears throat> so there seems to be a double standard, uh, and that's the perception that many people have. It's one thing to believe something. We're entitled to believe as we wish in this country. It's another thing to allow that to manifest into revolutionary behavior that threatens the overthrow of our way of life and our government. We're a sovereign country. We ought to defend our way of life, and that's what I've signed up to do. Marxist revolutionaries are intent upon the overthrow of our way of life and, and to put in place of it something that is altogether different. Now, there's a there's specific language in the oath that I take that many that all of our service members take that we're to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, what service members have to grapple with is what is a domestic enemy. Now, you might have different opinions about what that is, but I would say someone who's intent upon the overthrow of our way of life and our government who hates the Constitution and who wants to demonize America and Americans based on their group identities, that's antithetical to our values and it's actually a threat to our continued, the preservation of individual liberties in this country. And so at very least, what I have to do and what others have to do is be courageous in identifying what they perceive as threats so that we can tee up the conversation about how we're gonna handle those threats. Um, instead, there's a politically partisan push right now to define and determine what the domestic enemy and the domestic threats is. Uh, that's been, in fact, recently identified uh, as, you know, global warming is something we're focused on or global climate change and white supremacy. And uh, there have been two senior leaders, at least that I'm aware of, uh, the commander of US Strategic Command, a four-star, and the commander of US Space Command who are both asked by the Congress if they're aware of any white supremacy in the services, uh, if they've ever met any in their, in their careers. And they both answered negatively. They, they weren't aware of any of this problem in our services. And so it surprises me that that's one of the most, the most pressing domestic threats that we're trying to face right now. I'm not saying it's not ever been an issue or isn't an issue in some pockets of society, but to identify it as a threat to our, to our trusted institution, the military is something that I don't personally see and completely disagree with, but it's not me to decide the policy. Yeah, so the, I mean, I'm sure you saw the professor that came out from Riverside City College, Asatar Bayer, an economics, economics professor who is a self-identified communist, speaking highly of Joseph Stalin. You know, he was a successful revolutionary, a great listener, just talking to him, talking about him as if he's this, you know, righteous leader that we had. I asked that question when I asked you, do you think uh, communists, uh, open public, open communists should be able to be professors in our system? If that question was asked, should a white supremacist be a professor in America today? What do you think the answer would be within a split second? Oh, it would be absolutely not. So why should a communist be a, uh, allowed to be a professor? I mean, I, I see both okay. as extremes. My question is more, why are we allowing extremists to be professors. I want to show you right. data here, which you were kind of talking about the membership of Communist Party. Uh, while you were speaking, I just did the search. This is national membership by year from 22 to 1950, right? And you see it, it, it increases a little bit right after war. Obviously, the date you gave, uh, Bolshevik was 1917, uh, US was 1919, and China was 1921. It's almost every two years, one of them came out with their Chinese, with their Communist Party. So the, the membership's going up while the economy's bad. But the moment the economy improves, membership goes down. The moment 1929 crash happens, look how the membership goes up. Because it's all, you know, they need, they need a massive crisis for them to push their agenda. The moment the economy recovers, their memberships goes down. It's such a tough time for these guys today to make their argument because the rich are getting poor, uh, richer and the poor are getting richer. So it's, you know, the, the saying where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. The only part that that makes sense is the following. I was a kid that grew up in a family where my dad was a 99 cents or cashier in Inglewood. My dad never sat me down and explained to me what a 401k is. My parents have never owned a 401k. My parents have never owned a stock, 
a mutual fund, an annuity, an insurance policy, a life insurance policy. Never owned a house. I've never lived in a house. I've always lived in an apartment complex. Nobody told me, here's what rule of 72 is. Here's what buy, you know, here's what uh, buy and hold is. Here's what the dollar cost averaging is. Here's what a Roth IRA is. I, I don't know any of that kind of stuff. I, my dad was a cashier at a 99 cent store. He was making 1500 bucks a month is what he was making. So that was never taught to me about how money worked. And so gradually, the rich got richer and the poor is getting richer. We're making more money every, in every possible way. Life is getting better, better. So their argument isn't working. So in order for them to effectively impose their argument, they have to go back to what you were talking about, Antonio Gramsci, which, you know, he talks about cultural hegemony, which I'm sure you're familiar with cultural mm-hmm. hegemony. If, 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 by the way, I don't want to read the definition. Would you mind taking a quick second here and telling everybody what cultural hegemony is? I'm sure you've but, uh, spoken about this in your book. I do write about it in the book. Uh, he's written, there's a, there's a short, if I'm not mistaken, there's a short paper even uh, that you can go read about this um, understanding cultural hegemony. But we, we did touch upon it earlier. It's this idea, as you pointed out, look at the graph that you, that you put up on the screen there. Remember, there was Frankfurt School Marxists that came over into the United States uh, on the tail end of that crash in at the beginning of the 1930s. And you see the Communist Party USA numbers boom during that period. And it's the same time period that Gramsci and others are pushing this idea that you have to divorce people in Western society from their traditional values, their traditional culture, their traditional norms. And you need to replace it with a different set of values, a different set of norms and a different culture. And if you're able to do that successfully, now, as you pointed out, the economic stratification argument, the idea that the working class is gonna continue getting poorer and need to rise up in revolution against their, their captors, the capitalist ruling class, that was not a successful narrative to use to spur violent revolution in a place like the United States. But that's when that same time period where the numbers are booming there, mm-hmm. and when we're talking about cultural hegemony, Antonio Gramsci and others that are grabbing a hold of that idea that we should divorce people from their traditional values and replace it with a, a separate ideology. During that same period is when you see the development of both critical theory and it morph into critical legal theory. Let me read you something from my book just briefly here Please. that I've got because it gets right at, it's going to take me 10 seconds to find it. So here it is. It actually took me three seconds to find it. You're good. You're a fighter (laughs) pilot. I didn't even have it marked. Page 102 of my book. So today, critical legal scholars at Harvard University help us make the link between critical legal theory and the now popular and pervasive critical race theory. Uh, The Harvard Berkman Klein Center has a page on, on their website about critical legal theory today specifying what it is, and and it's related to what we're talking about. Critical legal theory scholars focused from the start, this is a direct quote from their website, on the ways that law contributed to illegitimate social hierarchies, okay, pay very close attention to the language, producing domination of women by men, non-whites by whites, and the poor by the wealthy. This is a classic oppressor versus oppressed narrative that is showing up in our our, our our, our institutions of higher learning. They claim, this is again, still a direct quote from the Harvard uh, Berkman Klein Center's website. They claim that apparently neutral language and institutions, apparently neutral language and institutions operated through law mask relationships of power. The emphasis on individualism within the law similarly hides patterns of power relationships while making it more difficult to summon up a sense of community and human interconnection. Now, let me connect that quote from Harvard's website. Uh, Now, this is critical legal theory. This is a half century old to the current uh, far more politicized critical race theory. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, has come up. Uh, a number of times in the media in the last few months, and specifically in the last week, I've talked about it. In the introduction to his book, and this is this is going to be a, some quotes directly from his book, Kendi mentions that colorblindness, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, dream and ideal for Western society and for American society specifically, colorblindness is racist passivity. 
These are not my words. These are Kendi's words. Colorblindness is a mask to hide racism. And the Constitution of the United States is a colorblind racist constitution for a white supremacist America. Those are ideological talking points that are rooted in Marxism with the intent on dividing the American people. Okay, so you can see how cultural, the idea of cultural hegemony planted, planting the seeds of division over time in our institutions of higher learning manifest today tactically and methodologically in the writings of critical race scholars. And then he goes on to say, if you consider yourself not racist, I don't care what your race is, I don't care what your political party is, that is, that is the language of neutrality, not racist. You are either racist and admit it, or you're racist and you deny it, confirming your racism. If you claim to be not racist, you are, quote, like the Trumps, and other white supremacists of the world. Now, what is problematic about this is not that somebody believes it because lots of people believe stupid things. What's problematic about it is that it's being recommended to our service members as something that's going to help them navigate the complex world that we find ourselves operating in. And it's a distraction from our main focus, which is to prepare, to deter, and if necessary, to fight and win the wars that our nation calls upon us to fight and win. And we've got serious enemies in the world who want to see our dissolution, like China. Uh, and I can't help but imagine that if you are an active, I think there's 90 million people in the Chinese Communist Party, which is like 6% of the 1.4 billion people in China. Only It's like less than 10% of their population is actively a participating member in the Chinese Communist Party. If you're Xi Jinping, if you're his advisors, if you're the leaders of the CCP uh, and the PLA, uh, People's Liberation Army, military forces, there's nothing that you'd like to see more than for American service members who provide a certain traditional integrity to the United States and the Western world, let's say, and a defense of it, who aren't political, to, to start getting wrapped up and divided over Marxist-rooted uh, political ideology because they know very well where that leads. It leads to revolution. And uh, so if I were them, and I, I'm not planting ideas, they already do this, I'd be actively engaged on social media platforms, like you mentioned, with bots and other personalities dedicated to fomenting the, uh, the, the revolution by planting these soundbite ideologically-based uh, snippets of, of trash that come from people's books like Kendi's books. You get people to believe that, they'll start to hate other people based on their group identities. You know, I will tell you what you just said was uh, very powerful. But earlier when we were talking about the membership goes when goes up when the economy's bad, you know, uh, uh, we have less welfare today, less poverty. The rich, only reason rich Rich's network goes higher than poor's doesn't. Rich knows where to invest their money. Poor doesn't know where to invest their money. You know, when I was a, a guy who didn't have money, I was putting my money in the bank. The rich looks at opportunities, investments, I had to learn how to do that by getting into the financial industry. But I want to read this from Wikipedia. I just want to read it from Wikipedia so the audience can go look for it. Here's cultural hegemony. When earlier uh, uh, we were talking about uh, Antonio Gramsci. This is him, okay? Antonio Gramsci, the Marxist intellectual, developed a, a notion of hegemony and adv advocated the establishment of a working class intelligentsia. So in Marxist philosophy, cultural hegemony is a domination of cultural diverse society by the ruling class, which manipulates of the, the culture of the society, the beliefs, manipulates. It manipulates the culture of society, the beliefs, the explanation, perceptions, values, mores, so that the imposed ruling class worldwide becomes accepted cultural norm, the universally valid dominant ideology which justifies the social, political, and economic status quo as natural and inevitable, perpetual and beneficial for every so social class rather than a as artificial social construct that benefits only one ruling class. So in, in other words, the way I take it, is look, let's confuse the hell out of everybody. Let's confuse them. And if you look at in the last 18 months, what was the biggest thing that the Marxist movement got that helped them drive that agenda even more, maybe not 18 months, 15 months, is COVID. Why? COVID shut us down. So 
California, New York, Illinois, Michigan, a lot of these states shut down Texas, Florida. Many of these places were open while these other states were not. But this shutdown got us to accept sending people money, paying people for their rent. The person who owns that real estate property that needs to collect rent is not getting rent, not from the government, not from the individual. They got a little bit of the PPP loan, but they're sitting there saying, I can't sustain this for for, too long. Oh, let's extend the moratorium. But but, but what do you want me to do? Well, you got, you're rich. You can afford to dip into your savings. But I just barely bought this duple, you know, this apartment. I don't have that much money in the bank account. I'm on a run. Doesn't matter. You are rich. You're categorically rich. You got to be able to pay for this. And gradually people said, maybe this Marxist stuff isn't that bad. Maybe this, we can send money to people. We we can print money. We can send money to people. In the last 15 months, I would have to say to you, they made so much progress in the last 15 months. The agenda has won so much because the divisiveness, the the division, them being divided has advanced them so much. Are you optimistic that based on history, tough heroes rise up that are not afraid to bully the bully? Or are you in a place where you feel we're at a tipping point where their agendas, unfortunately, gonna advance even more today than ever before, simply because they have the tools today that they did not have 100 years ago when this movement began? Okay, you've asked a terribly important question. so if, if people have been partially listening up to this point, I hope they'll listen very carefully. <laughs> During the COVID crisis that we've, that we've been subject to and also subjected ourselves to, <clears throat> active duty service members, it was tough for us to get even our service members to work sometimes if they were non-mission essential personnel, because we would like so many other businesses or organizations cut down on the number of people that were, that were allowed to come to work instead of hundred percent manning, you went to 75%, then you went to 50%. And at one point you're down to 25% manning. And so our service members are staying at home trying to telework. And it was different from base to base. This was not, you know, top down driven policy base to base because it was too dangerous to come to work, but there were waivers being granted for people to go downtown in various cities and participate in Black Lives Matter rallies that were smashing windows and lighting things on fire. Okay, now, now we have we have a right to go and participate in rallies, protests, et cetera, just not in uniform. Okay, so I'll make that clear. We're, we're saying that in fact, it was the Office of Special Counsel that, that determined Black Lives Matter last year. They've determined that Black Lives Matter is not a politically partisan organization. It's not involved in politics. It's not a political organization, which is false. It's completely political. Uh, and its founders have said so since at least 2015 in interviews. They said, we're Marxist. Democrat Party is not far left enough for us. We need to move to socialism. Uh, we have a Marxist agenda. Uh, we're trained Marxist organizers, and we're trying to revolutionize the system. Okay, that's all very clear language. Uh, and so it is very political. Now, to say that service members cannot come to work because it's too dangerous because of COVID, but that because but we have to honor their rights to go and participate in protests, even highly politically charged and potentially violent and dangerous protests like Black Lives Matter protests turned into during the last year is a very odd, to say, to put it lightly, uh, double standard. But here's to your point, the question of where we stand as a country, am I optimistic about potential outcomes and what courageous voices can do? This is why it's the crux of the matter. It's why it's so important to me as an active duty service member to speak up now early and often about what I'm seeing take place. For people that don't understand history, I get that you might be at odds with me or disagree with my method, my approach, my tactic. Uh, It's been embarrassing somewhat for the services for me to be talking publicly. I understand that completely. But what is far worse is for people to not say anything if they recognize how dangerous a path we're walking and to wait a year or two or three until it's far too late for us to reverse 
the radical trend that's occurring in our society to a to a single to, to a single party system, I'll say. I'm not talking just I'm not talking Republicans versus Democrats at all here. I'm talking about the establishment of a Marxist communist regime in this country. And you're saying we're well on our path to doing that. That sounds like conspiracy theory to some people a year ago. Some people are waking up now this year and in this month to the fact that that's entirely possible. Our country is not in any way different or unique than, uh, unique from any other country in human history that is susceptible to revolutions if we abandon our traditional values and are willing to buy into ideology. We are exactly the same because humans are the same. Human nature is the same. Uh, We are at a perilous crossroads in American history at the moment. Otherwise, I would not have put my potentially put my career on the line to speak openly about this. I'm trying to be courageous to beget courage. And yet, if not enough people wake up and get courageous, it might not be enough to stem the tide of radicalism that I'm seeing sweep across the country at the moment. Fortunately, I'm grateful for grassroots movements, parents, retired military officers, even active duty service members who are starting to speak up against this and starting to recognize this for just how dangerous it really is. There's a group called STARS, Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. And they have a website, STARS with two R's, stars.us. They were just formed in the last couple of months and they've got thousands of people that have signed up to join them trying to fight critical race theory in the services, for example. There are movements and organizations like that who are taking courage. And I'm hopeful that at least in the near term, we're going to be successful at erecting barriers to the revolutionary cause and taking back some of our uh, foundational values uh, and allowing the democratic process between parties in this country to play out on the civilian stage among government officials, elected officials and our civilian population on the one hand, and on the other hand, allowing our services to return to being non-political, not politicized, so our service members don't get divided over these political ideologies. What's next for you? You you sound uh, you sound like you got a potential big upside, but uh, uh, meaning if you ask for, I don't know what your aspirations are, but what's what's mm-hmm. next for you? So I'm still active duty. I'm not in command. Uh, there's I hear from reading in the media an investigation that's ongoing about me, <laughs> but I've not been informed of that in writing or verbally from my chain of command, and so. You know, I, I get legal counsel. I wait and I and I sit and I wait and I see what the outcomes of this uh, supposed investigation are going to be. Uh, I, I've had the understanding and ambition that I would be a leader within our service, uh, within the Space Force for, for a very long time now. Uh, the service has said it's lost its trust and confidence in me as a leader. Uh, So unless it wants to publicly say otherwise that it's changed its mind, that I'm actually doing something worthwhile and good, uh, rather than just being a controversial figure, I don't know how I could ever return to leading people in the services if the services had labeled me as controversial and untrustworthy. That's a terrible position to be put in. uh, And and I very much have been grateful for the opportunity to lead. Well, that's been taken. Uh, so I don't know, is the, is the short answer to your question, what my future holds, uh, whether it's in the service or out of the service. But I am very interested in my oath to defend this uh, the country's constitution uh, because it produces a society that values individuals. It produces a society that enables people to thrive regardless of their beliefs, their cultural background, their upbringing, and to pursue... Uh, to pursue excellence in society, to be contributors, to help, uh, to genuinely help contribute to the benefit and welfare of other human beings, regardless of their race, their politics, their beliefs. That's the greatness of the American ideal. Uh, Right now that's under attack, whether people want to believe that or not. And I think a great many people are starting to believe that. Any political aspirations or no? I've, I've always had Zero political aspiration. Really? <laughs> really. I've had zero political aspiration. Uh, there are a lot of people that seems have political aspirations for me at the moment, uh, but I've never had political aspirations. I wrote a book about political ideology, not in t- not interested in getting politically partisan. Um, I, I'm hopeful that our elected officials 
will be actively engaged in first helping remove the highly politicized uh, talking points and environment within our armed forces that have crept in in the past year, especially. But I'm also hoping that they'll that that citizens will get involved with their their state local governments uh, on school boards and other things. I mean, this is my personal views. People need to get involved right now and not wait another month. Uh, otherwise, it might be too late. They need to get involved and be active in dialogue that's respectful so that we can prevent the kind of divisive and potentially violent revolution that some hope for in this country. Uh, and I've seen a lot of this in the news in the past. They're getting a lot of press recently. There's a lot of people that are getting very involved and, and courage begets courage. And I'm grateful for people getting involved right now, but political aspiration, uh, I'll say not today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a, again, the way you speak is very, uh, uh, the way you put words together as you're explaining is so clear. It's crystal clear. Like you're just speaking the truth and you're going through it. And I think in politics that could help you out and you don't seem like you're an emotional guy. And uh, God knows we already know what happens when uh, we get a little too emotional. It tends to only give fire more to the opposing side. Favorite, uh, favorite um, Pilot in the movie Top Gun. Which one's your favorite? Just curious. Oh, man. I didn't even like the movie Top Gun. Get out of here. Seriously. <laughs> I didn't like it. No, I didn't. It was too cheesy, too corny. Too cheesy. But, too you know. Corny. Wow. So you uh, didn't like, you didn't like uh, Maverick riding the bike back to her place? You didn't like all that no, stuff? No, that was, no, that bugged me. Really? So what's your favorite fighter pilot movie? If, if you could say one that you liked, you which know. one would it be? That, this is going to disappoint a lot of fighter pilots. There, there was a really good, it might be called fighter pilot, actually. It was like in IMAX theaters uh, where you got to get some real good inside the cockpit GoPro footage of what it's actually like to fly in a fighter. That was kind of fun. Uh, I forget. It's been years since I've seen it. It might be called fighter pilot, though. Interesting. Uh, uh, and uh, the uh, Hollywood uh, fighter movies just have never... Uh, been that exciting <laughs> to me <laughs> that's well, sad isn't it listen i mean i mean i played i played uh high school and then for a short season college basketball and yet you asked me my favorite basketball team i'll also disappoint you i don't even pay attention anymore uh so, so you, you so you I, did you come a fighter pilot because you watched the movie or was it family no movie? no so how did it happen oh so here's see more, much more exciting than a hollywood movie I was a, a biology uh, student at the Air Force Academy intending on going to med school. Uh, and I went out to Edwards Air Force Base where they have the test pilot school uh, out there. And I got a, an incentive flight in a T-38 and had the time of my life sitting in that back seat, raging around in the desert out there. Cool. And, it, and it, I changed my major. I pursued pilot training. And uh, I loved, I loved it. It was tough work, but I loved, uh, I love flying. Well, uh, uh, brother, thank you for your service, Lieutenant Colonel. You know, well, for me, a man who changed my life. They, I got a list of ten men who changed my life in a positive way. One of them was Lieutenant Colonel P. Cox, whom till today I was in D.C. seven years ago. I saw a man walking by, and he was like a two or three star. I'm like. That looks like Lieutenant Colonel Peacock. I walked up to him. It wasn't. I'm still looking for him till today. But you being a Lieutenant Colonel, I am sure you have impa impacted many young men's lives. And they probably look at you as a leader. You have the presence of a leader. I thank you for your service. And some tells me you got a big upside. I don't know what you're going to be doing, but I think you'll be doing something that's going to positively impact this great country that my family escaped to come to. Thank you for your time. I, I appreciate your words of encouragement. Uh, I appreciate I started paying attention to your uh, interviews and your uh, and valuetainment actually after being invited to be on the show and I've, I've enjoyed going and looking at how you interview people and uh, you're open-minded and balanced and uh, I really appreciate uh, the work that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on as a guest. And by the way, folks, if you're watching this, we're going to put the link below to his book, Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goals of Conquest and Unmaking of the American Military. That link will be below. Go order his book. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. What do you think about what he had to say? Do you agree with him? Do you not agree with him? Thumbs up. You agree with him? Thumbs down. You don't agree with him? If you do or don't, comment below. I thought it was so interesting to see military. I mean, I understand media. I understand Hollywood. I understand even universities. But military?
military where a commander has to go through walking on eggshells the way he had to go through and he gets fired for it. I don't know. I want to hear your comments. Comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, there's two others I think you'll enjoy. One of them is uh, with Paul Kanger, professor, author, uh, his specialty. We talked about it. It was a very, very interesting. Uh, he gave the history of Marxism, Karl Marx, who he was, what he did. That's his specialty. And uh, another interview I did with Michael Malice, who has a complete different perspective of what direction he thinks America ought to go to. He's a famous, you, you know, he's, you see him in a lot of interviews on YouTube. Uh, click over there to watch his interview. Having said that, have a great one, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.